Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to let you know about a Facebook live stream that will be happening on Saturday, April 18th at 1 p.m. Central. Kimball Cornu will be discussing the Christian art of dying in the time of pandemic. Kimball Cornu is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis University and is a practicing palliative care physician. He was scheduled to teach our Pentecost term course on the Christian art of dying, but we have delayed this course until 2021 due to the coronavirus pandemic. For more information about this event, you can find links and information in the show notes. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob and Joseph with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 37, verses 25 through 36, where Joseph is sold. Do be sure to check out those links in the show notes, specifically our YouTube channel, where we are currently releasing videos for Holy Week from Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are edified by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph is sold. In Genesis 37, and I'll read again verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll finish this up today. This is as Joseph is going to his brothers in Dothan, which we saw probably means double cistern or two cisterns, two pits or wells. Verse 18, they the brothers saw him from afar, and before he had gotten near them, they plotted cunningly against him to cause his death. And they said each to his brother, here comes that Lord of dreams, the veil of dreams. And come now, let us kill him and cast him into one of these cisterns, pits, wells, whatever your Bible has. Cistern is the best translation. And say, an ill-tempered beast has devoured him. And then we shall see what becomes of his dreams. And when Reuben heard it, he tried to rescue him out of their hand. And he said, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, do not shed blood. Cast him into this cistern that is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him. In order that he might save him from their hand to return him to his father. And it came to pass when Joseph came to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his coat or tunic, the ornamented tunic or full-length tunic that he had on, and took him and cast him into the pit or cistern. Now the cistern was empty, no water in it, and they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and saw, and there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels carrying balm, balsam, and Ladnum, traveling to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What gain is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And meanwhile, some Midianite men, merchants, passed by, and they hauled up Joseph from the cistern, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit, behold, Joseph was no longer in the pit. He rent his garments, and returned to his brothers and said, The child is no more, and I, where am I to go? And they took Joseph's coat, 
tunic and they slew a hairy goat and they dipped the tunic in the blood and they had the full length tunic sent out and had it brought to their father and said, we found this, play recognize whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and he said, my son's tunic. And ill-tempered beasts has devoured him. Joseph is torn, torn to pieces. Jacob rent his clothes and he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I will go down to my son in mourning to Sheol. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Medanites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's court official, chief of the guard. We'll just start in verse 18 again. It says, they saw him at a distance and we said it emerges that he is wearing the special garment, traditionally coat of many colors, more accurately a tunic, probably full length seems to be the meaning. It's not absolutely certain what the adjective means, but that's the best guess now is something that goes down to the ankles or to the sleeves all the way to the end, full length. Tunic and tunics we have seen are a sign of royalty and authority. They're worn by the priests in their capacity as the religious leaders of Israel. They're worn by the princes and princesses of David's kingdom. And he's wearing this, and that's how they can recognize him even at a distance. And they call him the Lord of Dreams, better than any other translation you have, because that's literal. Baal, meaning Lord, Husband, Master, here, master or lord of dreams, and of course they intend it sarcastically, but it is true. He is the master of dreams, as well as in the dreams he is the master over them. And then in verse 20, it says they want to cast him into one of these cisterns. Cistern is a well, and I took the time to study it out, and I'm pretty sure this word occurs seven times from here to the end of this story, so it is one of the two significant theme words. The other word is tunic, which occurs seven times in this paragraph. I don't have that in your notes, but I think it's always useful in looking at a given passage to see if key words occur a significant number of times. Sometimes they're just repeated a lot, and you pick it up from that. Here, the count seems to be seven. I need to absolutely double-check that, because I didn't have much time this past week. But it seems to come up that number of times. So there are more than one cistern here. If Dothan means double cistern, then there's two of them. And they say they're going to cast him into one of them, kill him, and just toss his body down in there and say that a beast has devoured him. It says evil beast, and it's the same word for evil as the evil report that Joseph brought against his brothers back in verse 2. And in their mind, perhaps there's even a match between those two ideas. But notice that, as I said last time, when you are thrown down into the ground, when the earth opens up and swallows you, that's a sign of death because dust you are and to dust you will return. So we don't need to be told that being cast down into a pit or a cistern is a sign of death and coming back up is a sign of resurrection, whether it's here or with Jeremiah. Jeremiah symbolically at least taking the sins of the people on himself and being lowered down into the mud and then when Nebuchadnezzar comes and delivers the city, Jeremiah being raised back up out of the mud. All of these would be death and resurrection type of images 
But here it's even clearer. Let's kill him and cast him into the cistern. The association is made directly in the phrasing. So Joseph is going to go through the first of two death and resurrection sequences in his life. And when he comes to life again in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, he'll have much higher standing, much more glorious standing than he had in Jacob's house. And then he will be thrown into another pit, so to speak, into prison, which is another death experience. And here again, the death connection is going to be clear. He is accused of trying to rape the master's wife, and you certainly would be put to death for that. So being put into prison for it is a form of death. And then when he comes out of that, he's going to be raised to an even more glorious estate. So this is communicating something to us here, that while in a temporary way the Christian is thrown down, it is only a prelude to something better. And this happens so many times in the Bible that by the time you get to St. Paul, and Paul is in prison in Rome, he can write these prison epistles that are full of all these expectations that soon he's going to get out and stand before Caesar and do all kinds of great things. Because you learn as a principle that prison and death and these things are only temporary preludes to something better, which is a very hopeful thing to learn. And we're being taught it here in Genesis, and this is one of the first places where it's taught. Now, Joseph doesn't really know this. Joseph is afraid he's never going to get out of this cistern. He's afraid he's never going to get out of prison later on. So he's learning it, and we learn it from him. So that's where this starts, and that's why this word cistern or pit is used seven times here as an important theme. Having the garment torn off of you, your former glory is removed, and you go into a place of death. That's the axis in this story. Joseph has a glory, and that is removed from him, and he's put into death. He will come out and get another garment from Potiphar. That garment will be stripped off of him by Potiphar's wife, and he'll go down into death again, and he'll come up again, and Pharaoh will put a glorious garment on him, one made of gold. So this theme, garment being removed, going down into death, coming back up into something better, is laid out here, and it's pointed to by the very fact that these two key words, the cistern and the garment, occur over and over here. And not only Joseph's tunic, which is referred to seven times, but Reuben tears his garment and Jacob tears his garment. So garments become an even more important theme in the passage. Verses 21 and 22, Reuben tries to rescue him. I've got in your notes that that's chiastic if you just look at it. Verse 21 and 22, Reuben heard it. He tried to rescue him from their hand. And that verse 22 ends in order that he might rescue him from their hand to return him to his father. And then the next statement in verse 21 is, let us not take his life, and that matches, do not lay a hand on him. And then at the middle is, cast him into this pit. Don't shed blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. So even this little itty-bitty statement of Reuben, these two statements, focus our attention on the cistern. Put him in the cistern that is in the wilderness. Again, there's language here that seems unnecessary and I think just points us again to connections. Going into the wilderness is leaving a nice place where there's water and food and going into a place where there's no water and there's no food. 
In fact, we're going to be told there's no water in this pit. When Israel comes out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness. There's no water out there. There's no food out there. It's a death-like experience, but it's a transition from being taken care of in Egypt where you had lots of food and you had water and you had security into this place where it looks like we're all going to die. And eventually they do die there because of their sin so that you can come up again into a better land, the land of Canaan, where everything is even better than it was in Egypt. It's better than Goshen. Even when things were good in Egypt and we were in Goshen, Goshen is not as good as Canaan. And your transition is through the wilderness, which is kind of like death. So the statement, cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, why does he need to say that? Throw him into this pit over here. They already got a pit in mind. Let's cast him into one of these cisterns. Cast him into this cistern. He adds wilderness here, and I think it's so that we begin to understand that passage through the wilderness is itself one way of losing what you had before on the way to something else. And it's this transition, death-like experience. And as a matter of fact, Israel will go through death and resurrection in the wilderness. The whole former generation will die, and the nation will have to come to life again. But even if they had been faithful and hadn't sinned and been forced to go through 40 years of that, it still would have been something similar. You get out there and there's no water. As long as we're talking about the wilderness, I'll show you something else. If you are in Egypt, and then you come up here to the land of Canaan, and you go through the wilderness, what does the book of Deuteronomy say about the water in Egypt? It says this was when you watered your crops, you did it with your foot to cause the water to run along the ground and irrigate. But in Deuteronomy, what does it say about the water in the land you're going to? The land that you are going to drinks water from heaven. So these are the waters below, and these are the waters above, and you are passing through the firmament. You're making a transition from earth to heaven, symbolically, from a place that is associated with waters below to a place that is associated with waters above. It's somewhere in the first ten chapters of Deuteronomy. But it says, the land that you were going to is not like the land of Egypt where you watered with water running along the ground, but that you moved with your foot pumping the water. But the land that you were going to is watered with the rain from heaven, which means going through the wilderness is making this transition from waters below to waters above. And in between, there's no water. In the firmament, there's no water. That's between the waters. Similarly here, see, that's already being set up. That association is being pointed to slightly here by the fact that this cistern is said to be in the wilderness. Unnecessary language that is imposed on the narrative in order to give us some associations with things that will happen later on. Well, I pointed out last time, Reuben, as the firstborn, he gives them a command, which they disobey. Well, they disobey in all. In essence, they disobey it. They disobey his intention. And then he leaves. And this is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 2. God gives Adam a command. 
You can have every fruit you want, but don't eat that fruit over there. And then he leaves. When he comes back, they have taken the fruit. When Reuben comes back, they have done what they're going to do with Joseph. So Reuben, as the firstborn son, as the head of the situation, is in the place of the Lord, in charge of this garden, in charge of this situation. And the sin of the brothers is equivalent to the sin of Adam and Eve in seizing forbidden fruit. Now then, verse 23, we get to focus on the tunic. And it came to pass when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the full-length tunic that he had on, and they took him. Notice the emphasis is by the doubling up of the phrase. They took the tunic, and in, in case you don't know, this is the special tunic which he was wearing. So he was coming to them in his official capacity as the representative of Israel, who is himself a representative of God. And so he is coming to them as a representative of the king, as an apostle. An apostle is somebody sent out by a king who has the authority of the king. That's what apostle means. He is an ambassador who actually has the power to speak for the king. Joseph is coming as an apostle. To lay hands on him is to attack the king, to attack Israel, Jacob. But Jacob called Israel, called by the official name as God's appointed ruler. And he comes in that capacity so that he can report back. That's what an apostle does. And they attack him. In the New Testament, we have something called the apostolic parousia. Because parousia is the word we use for the second coming of Jesus when he comes back to pass judgments. Well, you read the epistles of Paul, and Paul is saying, okay, you better get things straightened up, or else I will straighten it up when I get there. Remember how often he says that? He says, I will straighten up the rest when I get there. I'm coming. And when I come, I will settle things. Well, the apostle comes, and he visits, and he reports. And this is the same kind of thing here. Joseph is coming in his official capacity as a representative of the Father, who is himself a representative of God, the priest of God on the earth, and he comes dressed in his official garments, and they take the garments off of him. And that's their attack, not just on Joseph as a person, but on the office that he represents. And... I pointed out to you before, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a tree of authority and rule, and that's what Joseph is. So again, to attack him is very close to the same sin as in the Garden of Eden, to reject the conditions of authority and rule that God has set up, and to seize rule and authority for yourself. They're not going to submit to Jacob and his decisions. They're not going to let Joseph report on them. They're going to take charge themselves make themselves kings, make themselves authorities, and do what they want to do. So these things are all set up as a parallel event. Well, it says they cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There wasn't any water in it. There's no water. Well, for one thing, that indicates how Joseph survived. He wasn't put down in any freezing water or drowned in water. But it also means the cistern is dead. If there's no water in it, then it's dead. It's useless. A dry well is a dead well. And earlier in Genesis, when Isaac would dig wells and the Philistines would come and fill them up with dirt, that's killing the well. 
So, again, there's no association of death here. Joseph is put into a dead cistern. And also, in terms of the chiasm of the passage, which we looked at last week, the pit is empty. They put Joseph in it. When Reuben comes back, the pit is empty again. This time, Joseph is not in it. And I pointed out to you before that this death of Joseph is associated with bread. It's not at all extra curious material that they sit down to eat bread on this event. We can do several things with that. First of all, within the Joseph narrative, bread and grain are going to be central topic. Now we're going to have a baker and his dream, and then we're going to have a whole problem of saving up grain, and then these guys are going to have to come and get grain and bread from Joseph. And already Joseph has had a dream of sheaves of grain bowing down to him. So this bread theme is all the way through. And we can also say that this anticipates what happens later on in that Joseph's death, so to speak, becomes an occasion whereby they get to have bread. This is all wrong here. But later on, as it turns out, what Joseph goes through is what enables them to live and provides bread for them. If they hadn't killed Joseph and sent him down to Egypt, he wouldn't have been able to provide bread for them. But there's one more aspect of this that we can point to. Again, the structure of the passage and the events here are designed to call our attention back to Genesis 2 and 3. And Adam and Eve not only seized authority that they weren't supposed to have and disobeyed God while God was away from the scene, as these brothers are going to disobey Reuben, but what they took was food and they ate it. And so to attack God's authority, to strip God of his authority by taking the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to eat food on the same occasion is just one more reminder of how we are in a Genesis 2 and 3 situation. It also indicates if you want to do something psychological here, they're fairly callous about this situation. I mean, Joseph is in the pit crying out during all of this. We find that out later on. When the brothers are thrown into prison, they say, we should have listened to our younger brother while he was crying out for us to deliver him from the pit. Well, he's shouting there the whole time and crying and everything else, and they're just sitting there eating food. It's not bothering them. So... There are a number of dimensions that you can comment on in terms of this phrase here. But I think the primary ones are that it's part of the bread theme in this passage. It shows that what happens to Joseph is going to be directly connected with providing them bread. And also the business of eating is another reminder of Genesis 2 and 3. Well, now we come to these spices. You know, we can spend three lessons, one on each spice, if we knew anything about them, but we can't because we don't really know much of anything about these spices. They lifted up their eyes, in verse 25, and saw. Notice that, too. I mean, if this connects to Genesis 2 and 3, and it does, obviously, not only because there's seven days here in this passage, and we've come to the fall, Reuben giving a command, leaving and coming back, all the different things, the garment, killing an animal to provide a garment, all these things that remind us of Genesis 3 and are designed to. But remember the emphasis on seeing in Genesis 3. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes. Now it says they lifted up their eyes and saw. And there was a caravan of Ishmaelites. Could have just said a caravan of Ishmaelites came by. But there's an emphasis on their eyes here. And what that carries with it. Discernment. Ideas. 
The caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, that's where Balaam is from. Is there no Balaam in Gilead? And that's the one word here that we know a little bit more about. Their camels are carrying balm, balsam, and laudanum. That's the translation here. Traveling to take them down to Egypt. These are, said spices, or we say spices, they're gums, they're rosin, like you make incense from. Incense is made from rosin that comes out of trees. This list only occurs one more time in the Bible, and two of these words only occur one more time in the Bible. And that's in Genesis 43.11. Very interesting, interesting connection. And I'm not quite sure how the connection works, but there's obviously a connection. Later on, when the second time Jacob sends the brothers down to Egypt to Joseph to try to get grain, he sends along exactly these things. In 43.11, Israel, their father, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the produce of the land in your vessels and bring them down to the man, that's Joseph, as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, balm, and laudanum, pistachio nuts and almonds. Honey, nuts, and almonds. So they can make baklava. And then these other things, which are medicinal. That's what he sends down there. So it's curious. Because these words don't occur anywhere else in the Bible except for balm, and that is a medicine, balm of Gilead. And these others are medicines, too, from what we know. You have to look around at similar words in other languages and what we know about the ancient world. Precisely what, even if I could tell you what trees they were from and how they were used, it wouldn't mean anything to us because our medicine is different today, but that's what these are. They're forms of medicine. Chiastically, this is parallel to Joseph going down there. You look back at your chiasm, and it associates Joseph with healing. That's the bottom line. These are medicines. Egypt needs to be healed. God is interested in saving Gentiles. He's not interested only in saving Israelites. The whole purpose of setting Abraham aside was so that Abraham could be the father of many nations, so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That's the purpose. So now God purposes to heal Egypt, to save Egypt. Later on, Joseph will say, God has made me a father to Pharaoh. In that way, Abraham becomes a father of the nation of the Egyptians. So that's God's purpose here beyond the immediate purpose of these brothers. And Joseph goes down there to heal the Egyptians. And later on, he will be a healing agent to his brothers as well. God is interested in the Egyptians. He has a direct interest in them. You've got the same kind of byplay in Jonah. I mean, Jonah is sent to the Assyrians for two reasons. One is so the Assyrians will convert because God is shortly going to send the northern tribes into captivity into Assyria, and so he wants to prepare a place for them. If the Assyrians are believers, it will be a lot easier for the northern tribes while they are in Assyria. They're not going to go into a totally pagan culture where they'll be tortured all the time. God will convert the Assyrians, and then he will send the people to them. That's what the fish is about. The fish represents Assyria. God prepares a fish, puts Jonah in it for three days, and then spits him back out. God prepares Assyria, sends Israel into it, and then later on they come back out of exile. That's what Jonah has to learn. But when Jonah asks about it, God doesn't just say, I'm preparing Assyria so that you will have 
a soft landing when I send you into exile. He says, I care about these people. I want to save these people. The whole purpose of setting you Israelites aside was so I could save these people too. And it's the same thing here. Joseph is going to go and prepare a place for the brothers to come later on. They are in sin. But God is also interested in saving the Egyptians. Both things are going on. And so to associate Joseph with these spices and medicines, or gums and medicines that are going down to Egypt, has to do with healing Egypt. And Egypt's going to be healed first, and then the Israelites, the brothers. Well, when they perceive this is going on, it says in verse 26 and 27, Judah said to his brothers, What gain is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. But let not our hand be on him. He is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. This is the center of the passage. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites is the center of the passage. Letter I. I just reminded you here that selling into slavery is a capital offense in the Bible. In Exodus 22... Man stealing is a capital offense. So the brothers, although they don't kill him, they might as well have. The Bible associates these two crimes by punishing them the same way. It is regarded as the equivalent of killing a person to capture a person and sell him into slavery, which is what they do. So the brothers have actually brought a death penalty upon themselves. And that will be measured out against them when they themselves are thrown down into a pit, into prison later on by Joseph. And they come in danger of going into slavery. And in fact, the turning point, of course, for the brothers will be when Judah says, please make me a slave, but let Benjamin go free. That will be where this story comes to its conclusion as regards the brothers. So, bad things. Then we come to these curiosities, Midianites and Medanites, verse 28. Some Midianite men, merchants, passed by. Some commentators and scholars get into a big mess about this. They say, well, Ishmaelite, maybe that was just a term for any caravaner or trader in the ancient world was called an Ishmaelite. But this caravan was particularly made of Midianites. And then when we read Medanites later on, they say, well, this can't be Medanites. This just has to be another way of spelling Midianite. I don't think we need to be real confused about this. In the first place, it may be that eventually all caravanners were called Ishmaelites. But we're only two generations away from Abraham here. And it's unlikely that the word would have picked up such a general meaning in such a short span of time. I just think we have to say, this is a caravan run by Ishmaelites, and within this caravan, some of the covered wagons in the caravan were Midianite. And with the Midianites were the Medanites, because they were brothers. Midian and Medan are both sons of Abraham by Keturah. So I just say the simpler explanation, more common sense explanation, is that the group as a whole is called Ishmaelites, and they include Midianites. And I think it's curious that that's who it is. In fact, three different sons of Abraham are mentioned here. Medanites in verse 36, Midianites here, and Ishmaelites. They're all sons of Abraham, and they're all going down to Egypt. And I pointed out to you that two centuries later, when we come out of Egypt again with Moses, we encounter Midianites. Moses goes and lives with Midianites for a while. And then Jethro comes and meets us just as we leave Egypt, so... That's kind of a match, going down to Egypt and coming back out. But here it just looks as if all the other sons of Abraham are heading on down to Egypt, and that seems to anticipate what happens to Israel later on. 
Israel will go down to Egypt too. Of course, these guys are just trading. They're not going to stay there. But I think it's curious that we're told so much detail and that all three groups here are cousins, sons of Abraham. It says they sold for 20 pieces of silver. This matches exactly what the Bible says in Leviticus 27. If you want to dedicate yourself to God's service, you bring a gift along with that. And these are the prices of human beings. A male between the ages of 5 and 20 is priced at 20 pieces of silver. A slave is priced at 30 pieces of silver. And that's what just paid for Jesus. Mature slave. Somebody older than 20. So that's exactly right. He goes down to Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. Then Reuben comes back. I have to compare this to Genesis 3 where God comes back and says, What have you done? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? It's going to be bad. Reuben returns to the pit. Joseph was no longer in the cistern. He rent his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The child is no more, and I, where am I to go? Odd phrase. You can imagine it psychologically. What's going to become of me? It's easy to paraphrase that. But we also want to take into consideration not just the psychology of it, but also the symbolism of it. If you think back to Genesis chapter 3, after we sinned, we had to leave the Garden of Eden. Where are we going to go? We can't stay in the Garden of Eden anymore because we sinned. We had to be kicked out. And Reuben is expressing the same thing here. We have done this. What's going to happen to us? There's this risk now of being cast out. The brothers have plucked forbidden fruit from the father's tree of rule and authority. As firstborn son, Reuben's action of rending his garments indicates that judgment has come on the whole garden of Eden of Israel. Where am I to go recalls expulsion from the garden. Garments. Garments have to do with glory. Reuben is firstborn son. For him to tear his garment means the whole situation is torn up. It's not just his personal garment, but as firstborn son, what he does has to do with all the rest of them. He told them not to do this. Well, they could say, well, you didn't particularly tell us not to sell him to Ishmaelites. But, of course, they understood. His command was clear enough. And now the society is torn up. The glory of their situation is destroyed. Well... They slay an animal to cover up their sin. This reminds us of God killing an animal to cover up Adam's sin. Only they do it for themselves. They took Joseph's coat, slew a hairy goat, and dipped the coat in the blood. The tunic. And they had the full-length tunic sent out and had it brought to their father and said, We found this. Can you tell us who it is? Is it your son's tunic or not? They sent it on ahead and return when they finish with their pasturing later on. I think that's what we have to understand here. I always had it in my mind that they came back with it and said, oh, we found this, but that's not what it says. It says that they sent it back to their father, and eventually when they got home, they asked him about it. And exactly how that happened, we're not told. But we are told that that's how they did it. They finished their work of pasturing and went on home, but they sent the garment on ahead. It's kind of a way of diverting attention from themselves. They mail it back. They send a servant with it. you got to understand that there aren't just eight or nine brothers out here. There's a bunch of other men out here, too. There are servants. There's hundreds of servants in this sheikdom. They all go down to Egypt and fill up the land of Goshen. 
So all these servants were out here with him, and so they deputized a servant to take this garment back while they stay out there and finish their pasturing. They don't all just come home and bring all the animals home all at once. They couldn't have done it anyway. And then they ask about it. I don't know why Jacob didn't look at it before they got home. It appears that he didn't look at it until they asked him about it. But perhaps the narrative is being collapsed here. At any rate, when they ask him about it, it says in verse 33 that he recognizes and said, My son's tunic, an evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is torn to pieces. Is actually picked up. Exodus 22:13 gives us the law of evidence. If you leave an animal in somebody else's care for safe safekeeping, so just do good to read it. Exodus 22:13, or in the Fox translation, it's verse 12 because they follow the Hebrew numbering. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a lamb for safekeeping and it dies, is crippled or captured, no one seeing it, the oath of the Lord will be between the two. If it was stolen, stolen away from him, he has to pay it to its owner because he was responsible to keep an eye out for it. If it was torn, torn to pieces. Same doubling phrase as we have here. Torn, Joseph is torn, torn to pieces. If it was torn, torn to pieces, he will bring it back as evidence. What was torn, he does not have to pay back. So, evidence. They bring evidence, and Jacob has to accept it. They say, you loaned your sheep to us, and while he was in our care, a wild animal devoured him. And here's the evidence. That's the law. If I loan my sheep to you, and an animal tears it up, and a wolf gets in and tears it up, or a bear, and you can bring the torn up animal as evidence. Well, that's the same thing that's happened here. Israel has sent Joseph to them, into their care, and they're saying an evil beast devoured him. Of course, they don't say that it happened while he was there. They say, we just found this. But it's the same general idea. They're presenting evidence. Except they're lying about it, of course. Verse 34, Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. Jacob identifies himself with Joseph being torn apart. Joseph is torn apart, so Jacob tears himself apart by tearing his clothes. The word Jacob is used here. Jacob does this as an individual. But the fact is that Israel, that is the community, has also been torn apart. We've already seen Reuben tears his garments. Essentially, the entire society is torn apart. And so we have social societal question here. Your society is torn apart. Because people are at each other to the extent to where they're virtually killing each other. And so how do you reconstruct a unified society when it's gotten to that point? I mean, look at this election we have. It's just a hair's difference between the two serious candidates, and it could tear itself apart. I don't think it will. But it gets there, and out on the fringe, of course, the barbarians under Jesse Jackson and the like, are out there screaming and yelling and demonstrating and carrying on, they would tear it apart. If we don't get our way, we'll riot. The big boys aren't going to let that happen, I'm sure. But you've got that on the edge, and it happens in other societies where there's less self-restraint. So what happens when it actually comes to pass and a society is divided in half and you have anarchy? Because that's what's happened here. This is a society, the society is torn up. The rending of these garments means that. 
A garment around a person represents the society of people around him. You see that with the high priest. The high priest is dressed in Israel. Those stones that are on his garment are the tribes. Your garments are your glory and symbolic garments represent your society. The society around you if you're a king. That's the symbolism of the clothes. Well, Jacob, he's the king here. He's the leader. He's the father. So is Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn son. He's number two. They have both torn their garments. That means this society is torn up. So now what are we going to do? What is the social transformation that's going to have to take place? And remember, I've said to you right along, in Genesis we've been dealing with individuals, but now we've got all these sons, we have to start dealing with the society. And that's the transition, not only showing us how God deals with individuals, but also with society. So, we've got to have resurrection here. The garments of life are replaced with the garments of death. Whatever nice-looking clothes he had on, he puts on now sackcloth, which is death. And he's identified himself with death, being ripped apart and dying. And then, just at the end here, it says, All his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. Does this mean Jacob had more daughters besides Tamar that we don't know about? Well, it might. Daughters usually are not listed, not because women are unimportant, but because the narrative only tells you things that are important for the purpose of the narrative. And so, it could be that there were other daughters, but it's also entirely possible this means daughters-in-law. We don't know. At any rate, people in the family tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down to my son in mourning to Sheol, and his father wept for him. Since we know the rest of the story, we know that he'll be going down all right, but he'll be going down to Egypt. And he will be going down to his son, and his son is going to be in Egypt. And so although at this point all Jacob can see is going to death and finding his son in death, Actually, something nicer is going to be in mind. He will go down to his son, but it will not be as bad as he thinks. But he doesn't see that yet. Meanwhile, the Medanites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's court official, chief of the palace guard. We can ask, why is this information about Potiphar given here? That's the question I asked. I thought, well, why are we told this? We already know he's going down to Egypt. Why not wait till chapter 39 to tell us? This information. But I think the reason is to show that Joseph has been transferred to another household. This story really isn't over until we see that Joseph's death is followed by a resurrection, and the resurrection is already here. He is going into the household of a very important functionary of the king of Egypt. So he's moving from one royal house, so to speak, the house of Jacob, which isn't all that royal, but at least it's a sheikdom, He's moving into a much bigger royal house, on the periphery of it anyway, and that's how the story ends. And we will have to stop with Joseph now and take up an entire chapter dealing with Judah because this is not just about Joseph as an individual, it's about the society. And we have two brothers that are important, Joseph and Judah. And before we look further at Joseph, we have to trace out Judah's life for the next 30 or 40 years. Then we'll go back to what happens with Joseph. That'll be next time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.